Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we've got a ton of breaking news on the website. I'm going to get you to that in a second, but two great guests. Remember, I've been talking about this on the show tonight, 8 p.m., Real America's Voice. I've got a TV special. A lot. I'm not used to being in the anchor chair. I like being on the other side reporting. But uh, tonight, big special, securing our elections, the grassroots fight to make voting safer and easier. We've got an all-star lineup, thanks to our partner, Heritage Action for America. We've got the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp. We've got uh, the former governor of Florida, the current U.S. Senator, and a sponsor of a very important election security law. Senator Rick Scott of Florida is joining us. Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana, the, uh, the, really the thought leader of the House GOP as the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. He's joining us. We've got um, a, a State Representative Hoffman from Arizona. He got a law into place to ban what we call now Zuckbucks, the Mark Zuckerberg money, that $350 million that went to uh, state and local election officials to get them to get out the vote in Democratic enclaves. Really important interview there, how they got this done so quickly in Arizona. Uh, and then we're going to have the Lieutenant Governor from North Carolina, who last year, before we knew what November 2020 was going to look like and the big feuds and disputes and irregularities that all surfaced. Uh, he, he ran for having a voter ID law in North Carolina. I would love to talk to him. He's way ahead of the curve on that. We're going to have him here as well. Big election. Now, in a few minutes, I've got Garrett Best joining us. We've had him on the show before. He's from Heritage Action for America. He's one of our partners on this program tonight. And he's going to come in and tell you what we hope to accomplish, some of the things that are going on, what Heritage did to create a grassroots army to get these laws going in Georgia, Arizona, Iowa. But also, uh, we're going to debunk some of the bogus arguments that are being made in this uh, election war of words. A lot of the uh, claims, like the Jim Crow 2.0 claim, have been knocked down. Even the President of the United States, Joe Biden, has been given Pinocchios by the Washington Post because he didn't treat the Georgia law fairly, honestly, accurately. A lot of misinformation. We're going to bang those uh, false statements down and give you the facts like we always do at justinnews.com. And then after that, oh man, we're going to have some fun. We're going to do a deep dive on the New York Times, the old gray lady, the king of news in the newspaper land, which today is facing more controversy than ever before. Some of its own employees or former employees are quitting, they've left, they're criticizing uh, the failures of fairness, the failures of accuracy, the failures of honesty at one of the great newspapers in America. Listen, I still read the New York Times every day, but I gotta tell you, there's more propaganda and less news than ever before. And there, as we've talked on the show many times, they have not owned up to the extraordinary, awful failures of accuracy on the Russia case. They had some of the most inaccurate stories ever on Russia, and they've never retracted them. They should. Um, I've talked about that famous February 2017 article where even Pete Strzok, the head of the Russia investigation for the FBI, writes, there were nine major errors. Every major fact of the story was wrong. And yet, uh, we don't expect that from a major news organization. And if we, you know, sometimes errors happen, what's the right thing to do? You're supposed to retract and correct 
The New York Times never did that. And joining us today is a really great guest. He's the author of a new book, The Gray Lady Winked. I get a, I get a kick out of it. The Gray Lady Winked. What a great title. Ashley Rinsberg, author, uh, has done a deep dive on the New York Times and its failures. And we're going to bring him aboard to tell you exactly what he found, what are the headlines and, and the failures of this great news institution. So you're going to want to hear what Ashley has to say. What a great book. What a great thought piece that he's done here. It's based on the facts and the failures of the New York Times, not opinion, not propaganda, not Christopher Steele dossiers, real facts about failures at the New York Times. What a great idea. What a great book. Before we get to those two great interviews, Garrett Bess, Ashley Rinsberg, we're going to talk about two stories that we broke this morning. Factual big stories. First, one from me. I have been focused on this Obama bundler, um, uh, Imad Zuberi, uh, first because it's just a remarkable story that we now have three or four cases, not one, three or four cases where it's now been proven by the Justice Department, Democratic fundraisers for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton routed foreign money into the campaign coffers of the Democrats. We keep talking about foreign collusion and Republicans, Russia, blah, blah, blah. How about these cases? Major, major cases that have been brought in. So I thought the Zuberi case was important because he pled guilty and admitted that there was foreign money that flowed into Obama's and Hillary Clinton's and several other candidates, uh, coffers, uh, Republican and Democratic congressional candidates. Uh, important stuff, right? Uh, but then, as I was reporting that out, I learned something completely unexpected. It took a, a lightning bolt revelation. It turns out the whole time that Ahmad Zuberi was working as a fundraiser for all of these candidates and campaigns, he was also working for, you ready? The CIA, the U.S. intelligence community. Just on the face of it, that's troubling. You got someone involved in the political process who also reports to the CIA as a human source, as an asset. Well, we had that story. That got a lot of attention. In fact, the Wall Street Journal, though, they were not kind enough to credit the um, Justin News, even though they used one of my quotes, they stole one of my quotes from my story, still wasn't kind enough to credit us. But they matched the story, and I guess ultimately imitation is the ultimate form of flattery. The Wall Street Journal matched the story that I had a few weeks ago that, in fact, Imad Zuberi did have these intelligence ties. It's complicating the criminal case. But now comes the big revelation. The lawyers for Imad Zuberi have, ready for this? filed a complaint with the CIA Inspector General, the chief watchdog of the agency, saying that he witnessed and is privy to and has evidence of abuses, legal violations, regulatory violations in the conduct of intelligence operations. He is blowing the whistle on his old uh, contacts at the CIA. And there are some amazing things in this complaint. By the way, Congress was just alerted to this complaint. I have a copy of the letter and I write about that and what it says. There's some very strong words. I want to also point out who represents Ahmad Zuberi now. He had different lawyers before, before he pled out and admitted that he did some foreign and straw donation uh, uh, stuff illegally, uh, did a FARA violation thing of uh, foreign agent registration. But his lawyer now is the former chief lawyer of the CIA. He's got one of the CIA's own representing him and it's that lawyer who sent the letter saying, I have submitted complaints alleging that there is widespread abuses, problems with uh, conduct inside the CIA while handling this very sensitive asset. Someone who's involved in politics, hanging out with John McCain, Lindsey Graham, donating to Donald Trump's inauguration, raising lots of money for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, many other Republican and Democratic lawmakers and candidates. Just the fact that he had a CIA connection should make us really concerned that maybe the CIA had some influence. But here are some of the things that are in this complaint that I've been able to confirm. Now, we got to wait and see what the IG finds, whether these things are uh, authenticated and proven. But given that the CIA's former lawyer is the one who's reviewed the evidence and made these claims, uh, there is going to be a high threshold of anticipation for what this investigation might ultimately turn up. But here is just a few of the things. It is alleged that the CIA used in this complaint, an American news organization, a journalism organization, to conduct operations overseas. CIA is not supposed to use journalism or journalists as a cover. Uh, it's alleged that uh, as a uh, asset or uh, wor someone working with the intelligence community in a private capacity, Ahmad Zaberi was asked to 
get information from lawmakers for the CIA or try to get those lawmakers to do things that the CIA thought was beneficial. There's even a suggestion that maybe some of his donations were linked to that effort. The idea that the CIA was manipulating members of Congress or spying on them lightly, again, I don't want to suggest they were wearing wires, but you know, a soft operation is pretty remarkable. Another thing he alleges, that a CIA officer pressed him, Ahmad Zuberi, to make an investment in a drone company. Why would we ask a CIA asset to use his own private money to invest in a drone company? That's a question we need answers to. All of that and many more allegations in this, these two complaints, which are very long, I'm told, and they've gone to the CIA Inspector General. They've been alerted to the key members in Congress, the House and Senate Intelligence Committee members. Let's watch out. Big news is on the way, I think, here. We broke a big part of it today. Check out the letters at justthenews.com. Hit the dig in button. You'll see all of the uh, information we have to confirm this. Big, big news. We're so grateful that you're tuning in, learning about it, checking out that story. All right, let's go to that commercial break. Next up, Garrett Bess, our good friend from Heritage Action for America, joins the show. And then a must-not-miss interview. You're going to want to hear what Ashley Rinsberg has to say about what he learned about the accuracy, the honesty, the fairness, the balance, the neutrality of the old gray lady, the New York Times. What an explosive interview coming up right after these commercial breaks. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And tonight, got a big moment as I've been talking. We've been talking about it every day on this show for the last week. We've got a special securing our elections tonight on Real America's Voice. It's a Justin News, Real America's Voice. And uh, Heritage Action for America sponsored event. We're really excited about it. Nobody better to get us warmed up for tonight than my good friend Garrett Bess, the Vice President of Heritage Action for America. And you've had him on the show many times. We're so lucky to have him. Garrett, welcome back. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. It's an amazing moment right now because I think what started as a pitched fight where Democrats were winning the messaging war has very quickly turned around. And now Republicans and conservatives and common sense centrists are, are really getting the right messages out about this law. So tell us a little bit about what you hope we can accomplish with this uh, special tonight. Well, you know, there's a, there's a good story to tell. Um, uh, apart from what the left is trying to uh, cause everyone to believe, um, you know, th the fact is that, um, you know, the election systems across our country could use uh, more security. And one of those, one of those really big, uh, things that can be done is improve voter ID laws across the country. Yeah, such a and it's thing. a common sense, it's a common sense thing. Um, Americans understand how common sense it is. You need a, you need an ID, a photo ID for all kinds of things in the society. Why wouldn't you need it for one of the most crucial aspects of our system of self-government and that, and that is voting. Yeah, such a great point. And, you know, we use it for everything. If you got to go uh, sometimes when I go pick up my suits at the dry cleaner, I have to show my ID. And obviously, if you buy a six-pack or if you go to the airport, um, one of the the um, things I've heard from a lot, it's funny, a lot of uh, even uh, civil rights activists, African-Americans on the ground, people who are upset that uh, what's happened in Georgia, the, the counter-offensive that's occurred in Georgia, is there's sort of a soft form of racism. There's this, this is an implied message that the Democrats are delivering that African-American voters, Hispanic voters, impoverished voters don't have the capability to get an ID. We know that's not true because the Government Accountability Office, for instance, took a look and found there really wasn't that much disparity between white African-American Hispanic voters and access to or ability or record of getting uh, voter IDs. But some of these laws like Georgia make it even easier, right? We, if you can't afford it, it'll be paid for you. Talk about how this voter ID thing has been twisted around with a really a lot of mistruths. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really ridiculous, and it, it shows up in polling, too, because, I mean, 
uh, a majority of, of black voters in Georgia actually support voter ID. And Amazing. if you think about it, I mean, the reason is, as Americans, we are we are sort of born with this sense of uh, the the right to vote and the right to control our own destiny um, and to select our leaders. And to sort of take that away from us um, is something that we would fight, you know, each one of us would fight against. And um, but but what the Democrats are trying to do is they're trying to convince people that a, having to show a, a, a form of identification in order to vote is the same thing as taking that right away. And people know that it's the exact opposite. Yeah. In fact, if they know every voter is coming into the to the polling precinct showing an ID, they feel 100 percent confident that their vote is secured. And it's and that and that's why the Democrats are actually, uh, I think, in, in the left are, are losing this this messaging battle because it just falls flat on its face. Yeah, you're right. The polling data. We had a poll here at Just the News, and it was overwhelming majority of American, every second American, young, old, black, white, Hispanic, non-Hispanic. The support for voter ID is enormously popular. Always a majority, no matter what uh, class of Americans we were talking about. And I think that's one of the tides that this Democratic argument has run into. Uh, another one is the failure of, uh, or the dishonesty of the left that somehow the Georgia law and others like it are uh, making it harder to vote. In fact, it's so much easier to vote under this new Georgia law. You don't have to wait in line. If a line gets over an hour long, you, uh, the state has, or the city or locality has to open up another precinct, lessen the lines, kind of like what we do when we go to Disney World uh, or Chick-fil-A, you know, having the efficiency of that. Uh, the hours are expanded. Yes, people can get water at the voting uh, booth. All of these fake arguments are now boomeranging around. Uh, you, Heritage Action has been on the ground fighting for this law before it was passed, since it was passed and signed into law. What are some of the more voter-friendly things that this and other laws like it are doing to make voting easier, not harder? Yeah, well, I mean, just going back to the voter ID thing for a second, it basically, um, you know, there's multiple pathways to getting the voter ID that you need. And then once you have that voter ID, you go to the precinct and you show up and and uh, and, you know, you're one of the things that the law does is make sure that you're not harassed in line by uh, political entities that are trying to, uh, you know, encourage you to vote one way or, or in the worst cases, uh, threaten you to to vote a certain way. Sure. Um, and that's been that's been spun around to say, like, we're trying to take food and water away from people stay in line. Well, no, we're not trying to do that at all. What we're trying to make sure is that political entities aren't standing at, at the precinct while you vote. Um, you know, offering you uh, in one hand sort of a bottle of water and sort of, uh, you know, sort of threatening you with the other hand, so to speak. Um, and so it, 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 uh, what, has been, what has been spun by the left to be anti-voter friendly is actually the exact opposite. It's trying to create a smooth process. Uh, the other thing is like um, there, there, there are things, uh, there's a common sort of uh, term called Zuckerbucks now and it's yeah. sort of a play on words from the Zuckerberg Foundation yep. um, that are they I, I was looking at a um, th this isn't in Georgia. This was in Florida. We had a, we had somebody uh, enter a FOIA request in Hillsborough County, uh, Florida. And uh, we got we got the actual um, contract that was that was uh, the Zuckerbucks were spent on in Hillsborough County. And it is designed to turn out specific types of people. Hundred um, And this is. And this is the government that's doing this. And so uh, the, these laws that we're, that we're sort of pushing for across the country are designed to level the playing field amongst all voters so that every voter is equal. And it's the left that are trying to create inequalities in our voting system. And hence, they believe they can rig their, the elections. Yeah, such a great point. We adjust the news here. We've uh, done a bunch of these FOIAs and won some FOIA lawsuits. In fact, we just got records earlier this week in Detroit. $7.4 million of Zuckerberg money went to the city of Detroit. You can't find a Republican enclave that got anywhere near that amount of money. But when you look at the contract, what is the, the deliverable that they must deliver or they don't get the money? They must, quote, dramatically increase voting in that Democratic enclave. That is clearly an effort to get out the vote in a Democratic strong voting district. And uh, when you see that happen and you see it going not to political activists where it would be legal, but to the neutral arbiter judges of elections, the people who are supposed to be apolitical and free from influence, it's so deeply, so deeply troubling. 
Um, you've had a success on this front already. Arizona, right? Uh, uh, State Representative Hoffman has been able to get a law passed that uh, uh, bans Zuck Bucks, as we call them, Zuckerberg Bucks, uh, uh, Georgia as well. Talk about some of the early successes you guys have had. Yeah, I mean, so when, when we were, as an organization, when we were sort of looking across the, the landscape of the state, um, you know, at the end of, of 2020 and the first part of 2021, uh, we recognized sort of eight states in which the left was determined to uh, really wage a, a war against our ability to select our own leaders. Right. And um, several of those states, uh, you know, I, I can rattle off the list real quickly. Iowa, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan. And uh, three of those states we have had either um, complete success in places like Iowa and Georgia, and we are on the way to complete success in places like Arizona, Texas, and Florida, uh, thanks to uh, people like uh, State Representative Jake Austin and, and, and uh, you know, people like Governor Kemp and others who are on the ground in Georgia. Yeah. And so, um, you know, each state is sort of uh, is pursuing these things through a different strategy. Georgia and Iowa had a little bit more of like an omnibus type bill where they put all the reforms into one, one, one bill, package. Right? Yeah. Arizona is doing it sort of. Uh, one by one. Um, but either way, we're going to get these things across the finish line, thanks thanks to uh, key allies in, in these state governments, but also uh, the work of conservative uh, activists across the country who are, you know, basically um, tired of being called racist for defending our institutions. And, uh, and we're not going to have it anymore. And, and, and we're getting this stuff done. It's uh, the progress is real. And, you know, it's only been four or five months since November, and yet so many measurable things are already happening. Uh, part of the story of success is this is a grassroots-driven effort. In, in Washington, it seems like Republicans are struggling, you know, to, to get anything done with the Democratic control, and that's understandable. Uh, but in, at the state and local level, you guys have amassed a, an army. And I know we're going to have uh, Jessica on our show tonight, and I'm really looking forward to talking about how you assemble that army. But give us a little bit of how this grew from the grassroots and why that makes it more lasting, more permanent, more uh, st uh, strong to defend because it comes from the people on the ground in these states. Yeah, so, I mean, for those who are not as familiar with our organization, Heritage Action for America is the, is the advocacy arm of the Heritage Foundation. And the Heritage Foundation is a longstanding conservative uh, thought leader um, for, for uh, constitutional principles. And uh, there was a team inside the Heritage Foundation that's been working on election security uh, for years, if, if not even decades. And so uh, immediately when this became a top, you know, top of the fold, uh, A1 page story um, coming out of the 2020 elections, uh, Heritage Foundation already had a list of best practices that these states could implement. Wow. And so what we did, we, we immediately stood up a website and, and y'all can go to it if you want it. SaveOurElections.com. SaveOurElections.com. Really All right. Yeah. There's a really uh, user-friendly um, sort of list of, of recommended reforms across the state. And so what happened was uh, we put this up, and, and before we could even, like, register the lobbyists and, and spend the money on ads and get digital advertising up and all that type of stuff, our army of, of grassroots activists uh, led by, led by uh, their leaders, which, are, which we call Sentinels, um, basically took those lists and ran with them. And so in places like Iowa, we could barely even, as, as an organization, get an infrastructure up and running before our activists in Iowa had already worked with the state legislature and, and had almost achieved success by the time, uh, you know, we, we got that infrastructure up. In the same case, same case in Georgia, uh, they were running with it. There was a letter produced by uh, conservative active, activists across Georgia at sure. sort of the end of January. And uh, and state and state leaders took notice, and and so uh, you know we came in with with firepower and air cover, so to speak. Uh, but but this is being led by individual Americans who are standing up and taking ownership of of their states and their communities. Yeah, listen, as a student of history, when something emanates from the people rather than from the ivory tower of Washington, uh, it always seems to have a more lasting effect. And I think that what uh, you guys have done at Heritage Action. Uh, what some of these early legislators and governors who've stepped into fire and said, listen, we can fix this. It's not that hard to make something more safe and more secure and also easier to do. And uh, it's been remarkable. I can't wait for the special tonight. We've got Senator Rick Scott. We've got Governor Brian Kemp. 
Uh, we've got uh, State Representative Hoffman that you mentioned, who's done some really great work in Arizona. Uh, Congressman Jim Banks, who's created the alternative to HR1. Gonna be a great night. And of course, Jessica Anderson, our good friend uh, and uh, your colleague at Heritage Action. Uh, Garrett, thanks so much for the time today. I hope everybody tunes in tonight. Here's all the ways you can watch it, just real quickly. You can go to any version of Real America's Voice and watch it. It streams on Roku. It's on channel 240 on Pluto. It's on channel 229 on the DISH satellite network. You can watch it live at justthenews.com. And our friends at Rumble, which I call the new YouTube, they're going to be broadcasting this live on their front page tonight, one of their first live streams in the history of Rumble. We're really excited to be a partner with there. Many places to go watch it. Tune in. I'm going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot. And we're so grateful that folks like Garrett and Jessica from uh, Heritage Action for America have made this special possible help work with us behind the scenes to put on a great product. Garrett, I can't thank you enough. And I know you're busy and probably got to run back to work somewhere. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's a great honor. We'll have you on soon again. Have a good day. You too. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, I've got a fun segment on cancel culture. You do not want to miss this. Uh, a new book, a, a really profound offer, a lot of fun stuff to attack on in just a few seconds. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Bite.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest on a topic that's one of my favorite topics. Listen, I read the New York Times every day. You have to if you're a journalist in, in Washington. Uh, but over the last 10 years, my trust has eroded because I've just seen story after story wrong. And the, our next guest, Ashley Rinsberg, has shown that this isn't a recent phenomenon. I was un uneducated until I read this book. The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times' Misreporting, Fabrications, and Distortions Radically Alter History. Uh, Ashley, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thank you, John. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. Well, this is a fantastic book. And as someone who's been a lifelong New York Times reader, uh, it really uh, educated me about their past sins. I'm pretty uh, well-versed in the recent sins because I did a lot of the Russia reporting and the New York Times was the antagonist who always was wrong on the story, it turns out. But I love to start our podcast when we get that rare chance with some breaking news. And we've got some crazy breaking news that fits the, uh, the very message of your book. Just about an hour ago, up on Capitol Hill, the U.S. intelligence chiefs, those uh, working for Joe Biden, uh, denounced or uh, ran away from the blockbuster story that the New York Times had last summer during the middle of the campaign, claiming that Russia had uh, put a bounty out uh, to, uh, to kill uh, American soldiers in Afghanistan. This was a big story, got huge headlines, was used to demean President Trump before the election. And today, uh, the intelligence chiefs answered that they had a, let me get the exact word because this has a very specific meaning in intelligence word, low to moderate confidence in the story, meaning it ain't true. <laughs> so uh, your reaction to that as someone who has found many other not true stories in the New York Times archives? Well, my reaction is that, you know, I, I think there's two things at work. One is that we have to look back at the original reporting and see what went wrong and more importantly, why it went wrong. Because I don't think it's news to anybody, no matter which side of the political aisle you're on, that the Times and certain other parts of the media pursued a very clear narrative when it came to Russia and President Trump. And what we've seen again and again is a lot of the reporting turned out to be false or thinly sourced or some variation thereof. So the question of why it happened is a very important one. And it, you know, it's one that touches back on virtually every instance in the book I wrote. 
because we have to ask, what's the cause? We know the New York Times is a huge organization with a lot of skilled, talented reporters, and most of them are doing their job really well. But when things go wrong, they go really, really wrong, like in this case, and, and that brings up that question of why. And the second question I think we have to ask is, now what is the Times going to do? Are they going to print a retraction, a correction? Are they going to apologize? Are they going to do the kind of reporting that will get as much coverage and profile as the original story? And my guess is that they won't. And, and I say that from looking at past experiences. That's what's happened time. And again, the big story breaks and, and there's a lot of hoopla and there's a lot of coverage and the narrative gets cemented. And when the story turns out to be false or, or mistaken or what have you, there's either a very small correction that's printed at the bottom of the article that very few people will pay attention to or nothing at all. So I think in this case, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens and, and hopefully the Times will do the right thing. Yeah, that is something that is a, a recurring theme in your book, which is the ability to correct itself, the willingness to correct itself, and to do it in a way that credibly uh, fixes in the public conscience the, the mistruth that got injected by the New York Times. That is a problem that the New York Times has. I can remember when, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, the Wall Street Journal got a big story, big wrong. It was at the very beginning of the internet era, and they had this story saying Monica uh, uh, Lewinsky was found in a compromising position uh, with uh, President Clinton, uh, according to a steward uh, who had testified, and it just wasn't true. But they retracted that story on the front page. They did the right thing. They gave it the same, the retraction, the same weight as the original breaking story. As you go through history, going all the way back through, you know, Cuba and Fidel Castro, uh, the Holocaust, uh, is that a problem that the New York Times has? It can't admit when it's wrong in a way that actually informs the public correctly? In my, from what I learned through years and years of researching this book and diving into these major historical episodes, it was never the case, and it's still not the case, that the Times was able to take responsibility and to act in an accountable way with, with these errors. And that spans all the way back to the 1930s with the famous Walter Durante case, where Durante was right. the New York Times Russia correspondent who covered up the Ukraine famine, which in essence was a genocide conducted by Stalin against the right. Ukrainian people and peasants of Russia. And you covered it up. And when the Times in 2005, they faced some criticism from Ukrainian Americans saying this, this is not right because Durante was given a Pulitzer for, for his misdeeds. Unreal. And the, the Times hired a consultant to check out the facts and see what they should do with regard to the Pulitzer. The consultant, who was a professor of history, recommended that they return the prize. Not very surprising. Their response was to not return the prize. They came up with a bunch of lame excuses. They called Durante's reporting slovenly, which is really not the case. Right. Uh, he was an excellent reporter. And what really happened there was that the Times itself as an institution were responsible directly you know, by, by Walter Durante's own admission for the cover-up. They instructed him to do it. He followed orders. And what are we talking, 70, 80 years later, they still really haven't come clean. And that's only one example. I mean, again and again, when you go through the book, you see this, the pattern is very well established, unfortunately. It is, uh, in the case of Walter Durante, you do such a good job of showing that it isn't just the misleading of the public that can be so harmful to this. Actually, because the New York Times holds such a prestigious position in the, the information power structure, actual events happen, right? U.S. recognition of Soviet Union the decision to recognize the Soviet Union was influenced by this bad reporting. Government officials took an action based on the misreporting that the uh, New York Times did. That's a part that I think sometimes yeah. we forget as journalism. We can drive public action. Very much so. I mean, I, I think almost more than you know any other institution out there that's not a part of government, journalists and the media have direct influence over government. Government relies relies on what journalists do and, and the facts that they uncover and the narratives they, they build to create their policy. That's exactly what happened with U.S. recognition of the Soviet Union. In that case, however, it was even more direct. In that case, it was really the New York Times playing a direct role in shepherding 
U.S. recognition of the, of the still nascent Soviet Union at the time. To the extent that Walter Durante himself personally met with FDR months before FDR became president and he was governor, and offered him the suggestion that the U.S. should change its attitude towards the Soviet Union and adopt what he called a more friendly approach. Wow. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened a few months later. And when there was a celebration, a gala celebration, in honor of the new U.S. recognition of the Soviet Union, the only single person to receive a standing ovation in that room of dignitaries was Walter Durante. And there's mm. good reasons for that. He negotiated it. Mm. Un- unreal. Remarkable. Um, sometimes the, and that, that actually strays into an example of uh, a form of advocacy or influencing the news, but in, uh, during the Vietnam War, you do such a great job of, of uh, showing how two New York Times correspondents worked to successfully turn the tide against the war. Their, their goal wasn't to give an accurate yeah. picture of the war. It was to turn public sentiments against the war. Tell us what you learned there. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's, that's pretty much the case. It was initially a very famous New York Times reporter named David Halberstam. Very young guy, arrogant, sort of by all accounts, even according to his friends. Mm. And his his partner in crime, Neil Sheehan, who was subsequently the New York Times correspondent from Vietnam. Right. And the two of them together decided that the South Vietnamese government had to go. They decided on their own accord that it was not representative of the Vietnamese people and that its values clashed with those of the U.S., and what they did is use their reporting to make that case without telling anybody. So they were reporting on things like the massacre of Buddhist monks by the South Vietnamese government. In one case, Halberstam ran a story that claimed 37 monks were killed, were murdered by the South Vietnamese. And it turned out when the UN launched an investigation into this atrocity that three of the people who had been claimed to be dead were being interviewed by the UN. That means they were still alive. And that, in fact, no Buddhists had been killed. And this was a major story. Oh, the kind of thing that sticks in people's minds. Yeah. yeah so you, uh, up to 40 people, 40 Buddhist monks, peaceful monks, were killed by this government, which means that government must be pretty. When the story turns out to be completely really false, the New York Times did not do anything about it. There was no correction to my knowledge, and it became one of those things that, that, like you mentioned before, influences policy. And this was the kind of pattern that they established in Vietnam. And they were so accurate in, in understanding the, the coup that eventually took place that they had predicted exactly how it would happen, and they'd only gotten the date wrong by a few days. So that that was something that, that few people really talk about, few people know about. And Halberstam, by the way, won a Pulitzer for his reporting as well. There is a common theme. Remember, the New York Times also won a Pulitzer for its Russia-Trump coverage, which we know today to be among the worst uh, of recorded news yeah. in recent history, for sure. Yeah. There's another thing that I think goes to the, um, the record of the New York Times and also to the the anger or concern or frustration Americans have with journalists, and that is sometimes it is the omission of information, the willful withholding of information mm-hmm. about sources. Yeah. And I think one of the anecdotes that jumped out at me in the book, and I'm, gonna, I'm going up to my cabinet, so I'm going to read it again because I'm really inspired by, by the deep research you did. There is a systemic problem here that has to be addressed, but the, the role that the New York Times played with in working directly with the Department of War, the predecessor to the Defense Department, to cover up health and environmental effects from the big nuclear bomb we dropped on, uh, nuclear bombs, the two of them we dropped on Japan. There was a suppression of information so that Americans wouldn't know the total impact of the fallout from, from using those weapons. Tell us what you found, a really remarkable case of journalism through omission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the reporter in question's name was William Lawrence. He was a science reporter at the New York Times in the 1930s and early 40s. And a very, very brilliant guy and a great, great science reporter. He was so on top of the story about nuclear physics and the developments being made at that time that he was really well ahead of the government um, in terms of his understanding of what was going on. 
But suddenly, after really covering this issue very closely, the reporting stopped. And he was suddenly, as, as this was all coming to a head and it was all getting very exciting, all these new developments about nuclear physics, he starts reporting on vitamin B and studies, studies related to smoking and cancer and really yeah. humdrum stuff for the time. And the question was kind of, why? why? What happened? Yeah, right. And it, yeah, so, he, so it turns out that he, well, he reappears on the scene in one of the bombers on the way to bomb Nagasaki. He writes this great report, news report, about being on this bombing run where they, he's actually watching the bomber drop the bomb. I forget it was, if it was a uh, fat boy or little man on Nagasaki. He was the only reporter to have that kind of access. And, you know, when you think about it, that makes sense. There should be no reporters watching a nuclear bomb being dropped on a civilian right. population. And what turned out to be the case was that he had been hired by the Department of War to lend a hand in, in a euphemistic term mm -hmm. to basically give them cover and, and run with the complete lie that there was no such thing as radiation sickness. Wow. That when they dropped this bomb, it was just a bigger version of a conventional bomb. But what doctors and medical personnel were finding on the ground, yeah. which we know to be the case today, of today, course, 100%. is that people were dying. Even They were just dropping like flies. And, and the Times ran this story and series of stories saying there was no such thing as radiation sickness. Mm. And they gave cover to the U.S. government in a way that was hugely damaging for, for decades, not just at that time. And it was a really shameful thing. And again, he won a Pulitzer for his reporting. Wow, I'm starting to see a pattern here. Huh? A lot of Pulitzer <laughs> that may not have been warranted. A lot, a lot of Pulitzer. Yeah, no, it, that's what makes your reporting, Ashley, so great. The book is The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Fabrications and Distortions Radically Alters History. Get this book. It's my favorite book of the year. I've read it, and I'm going to read it again this weekend because this, you know, all of us who are in the, in the profession of journalism we have to always remind ourselves, it's easy to get hoodwinked. It's easy to get sucked into false stories. There yeah. are people who can create false realities for you. And it's our job as the arbiters of truth to make sure that we avoid those as best we can. And when we don't, own up, acknowledge your mistake and move on. And I think, Ashley, you capture this in such a remarkable way. I want to bring us, you had some amazing historical ones here. I, I, I encourage everybody to take a look at the Holocaust. Um, and the role that the New York Times Berlin chief did, another very important book. But I want to take us a little bit to the modern era. We've talked Russia a little bit, but uh, you have a really remarkable analysis now of the 1619 Project. And, uh, and I, I think, uh, I, I can't remember the exact words, but the words of deliberately attempting to hijack the narrative is sort of what I, I walked away from that portion. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what you found about the 1619 Project and its problem with the mores of journalism. Sure. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the 1619 Project and a lot of criticism from both sides of the aisle. That's, that's very unusual. I mean, right. the Times takes a lot of criticism on a regular basis, usually from one side or the other in an, any given instance. Right. This was from both. It, it was from the World, World Socialist website on the far, far left. It was from the AEI on the right. It was across the board because they were printing things that were factually wrong. And it wasn't, these were not minor errors. These were major, major claims, such as the claim that the American Revolution was fought in order to preserve slavery. I mean, that is a complete whopper. Yeah. And yeah, everybody sure knows that. And the Times knew it too. So, you know, that was not anything I, I brought to light. That was already out there. What I was looking at in that case is why. The Times is a great news organization. They have the resources to make sure all their facts are checked properly. They do. To make sure that everything they're printing is completely accurate. So why would they publish something so patently false? And the answer that I come to through, through the investigation, through the research, is because they weren't trying to publish the truth. They're trying to change history with the 1619 Project. They say so themselves that the explicit aim of the 1619 Project is to reframe American history mm. in terms of slavery and not liberty, which is why it's called the 1619 Project, which is the year 
slaves first arrived in the colony. And in order to change history, you literally have to change it. You have to go out and make the claims that are simply not true and sell them as true as the truth. And that's exactly what they are doing. And I say doing because it's not over. It's not simply one magazine issue. This is a national initiative that is now being turned into a curriculum that's being taught in schools, being taught in universities, being bled into the into the wider culture. Unreal. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. And I think this is something where we're watching it unfold in front of our eyes. Unlike some of the other episodes in the book, which are in part of history or recent history, this is real time. And it's something I think we should be pretty concerned about. You know, I, as I read the book, and I, I go through this myself, because, you know, I know a lot of these reporters. Uh, some of them I worked with at the Associated Press earlier. Uh, same thing at the mm -hmm. Washington Post. And I worked at the Washington Post. I was their lead national investigative correspondent, one of my favorite years in journalism. But it was a different era. Uh, I wonder, uh, I have two um, uh, questions that come to mind, and I haven't answered them myself in my own psyche. But one is, is this a failure of leadership? Is does this buck stop at Dean Bacay's door? Are, do we have the wrong leaders in journalism? When you see the tape that uh, James O'Keefe had out earlier this week with CNN, where the guy said, we took out Trump, you know, it was our goal to take out Trump, we did it. Um, does this problem in journalism, and particularly the New York Times, start at the top with leadership? Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that's true in any organization, in any institution, but particularly in the case of a world famous, very powerful news company that has been owned by the same same family for 120 years. Yeah, they have complete control. The the Solzbergers, they have passed along the role of publisher of that newspaper for 120 years from male heir to male heir. It's very much a patriarchy in that sense, and they call the shots. And if the shots, if they didn't want the shots to be something like the 1619 project happening. It, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. So I, I think Dean Becket, yes, of course, there's responsibility. He's the executive editor. But I really think that the responsibility goes all the way to the top, which at the moment is A.G. Solberger. And, you know, that's, again, what's something I've seen in, from the book is that it was whenever the family, the New York, the owning family, the New York Times, the Solzbergers, got involved in a story or their interests got involved or their ideologies got involved, that's when things went really, really wrong. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here, is that interest in ideology, together they form a toxic stew in journalism. And that's the most dangerous thing. Again, human error happens. Journalists make mistakes. They try their best. They do their best 99% of the time. But I believe that, when by the way. You have I believe yeah, that. I'm sure you I don't, know I don't, a lot of people don't, don't go in every day and say, I want to get this wrong. I don't know any people like that. But it happens, and I think that that's the um, it happens. yeah. I think that that's right. the point. The middle management, yeah. What role do they play? And when I was in, you know, I, at the AP, it was a very I don't want to call it a paramilitary organization. It was a it's a wonderful news organization. But from the top to the bottom, there was one rule you could not buy. You will never have an opinion when you work for the Associated Press. I don't know if that's true today, but in the era that I worked, you did not have an op opinion, and you treated a Republican and Democrat with the same uh, respect, mm -hmm. the same uh, fairness. Uh, but in the New York Times and in the Washington Post, when I went to the Washington Post, one of the things that I discovered, it was a real journey for me because I, since a babe, I was 18 years old when I started working, or 19 years old when I started working for the Associated Press, I, um, I was taken aback by the role that the mid-level editors had in shaping a story, not only for the reporter through their edits. They basically would take over your story and they didn't like what you wrote, they just rewrote your story. But then the way they sold it to the front page meeting and to the front page editors and to the web editors, middle management editors, the people who have the day-to-day -day control over the copy flow and the copy, how important are they to the sins that we're now beginning to see in journalism? You know, I, I think it's a hard question for me to answer on a personal level because I've never worked in a newsroom, you know, and, and I think that's the kind of experience you just described is where you really see those those kinds of mechanics. But what I can say is that in a lot of instances that I studied that are in the book, what you had was one or two rogue reporters who were causing these problems with the backing of the owners. 
So, for example, in the case of World War II, where the Berlin bureau chief was a Nazi sympathizer, and I think you could even call him a Nazi collaborator, this is a guy who's shaping not just the New York Times coverage, American coverage of the Third Reich and Hitler's regime at the most important time in history. He was working in cahoots with the Nazis to spread their propaganda. There was at the same time that this was going on a, a sort of mid-level editor, like exactly like you're describing, a Jewish man who objected, who went to the Times of American no publisher and said, yeah, said he, he said, we, we, we can't allow this to go on. He's damaging us. He's damaging the country. And what happened? The man, this reporter, mid, mid-level editor, was threatened with a defamation lawsuit by the New York Times. Wow. If he were to speak publicly. That's a heavy stick. So I think that that was a heavy stick. And he, you know, that, that kind of exemplifies that trend where you can just have one person, one guy, like the, the bureau chief during World War II in Berlin, yep. his name is Guido Andaris, one Walter Duranty, one William Lawrence, or whoever it might be. And if they have the backing of the, of the very top layer of that institution, they can get away with anything. And that's exactly what has happened. And I'm guessing, I, I, it's hard for me to say, but I'm guessing with the 1619 Project, you've got one star reporter, his name is Nicole Hannah-Jones, who right. created the 1619 Project. She's got the full backing of the brass, and there might be a lot of rumbling in the middle from those very I hear senior or, or very experienced veteran editors, yep. but they're powerless in yep. that case. Yeah, they get canceled if they speak up. I, I have friends in the New York Times, and you are right on the money with that, Ashley. I hear that all the time. Last question, because I think as you go through many of the great examples that you gave us, and by the way, this is an incredible contribution to American literature and to American journalism. You're forcing us to think Thanks. about how we got these things wrong so we don't repeat them. That's the goal here. We don't want to do it again. Right. Um, right. How important, when you look at some of these stories historically, and particularly as you move to 1619, the most current example, maybe the Russia one just before, uh, there seems to be an effort to have the to define the story before the facts are reported. Agenda journalism, I call yep. it, where you want to create yep. the impact, even though the facts may or may not uh, support it. How do we uh, first? Did, did you see that theme in all, all of these historical examples you have, all the way to present? And two, how do we unwind that temptation that we're going to create the conclusion of the story before we do the reporting? Yeah, great question. Uh, and I think to answer the first part of it which is that it absolutely was the case in many instances. I mean, sometimes it was for just pure interest motivated by money or power prestige. In the case of um, the atomic bombing of Japan, where the Times got access that you just can't get. You can't get that kind of access unless you've got something amazing to trade, and that's what they did. Right. And so they, they took a prepackaged idea of the story, and they mm. sold it didn't matter what the reporting from the ground actually was. Um, that happened in num numerous other cases, including with Cuba, where the Times reporter, a man named Herbert Matthews, decided that Fidel Castro was the democratic savior of Cuba before he'd ever come to power, before he'd ever stepped foot in any yeah. kind of government institution. He was the, he was, they he called him a messiah, basically. And, and he sold that story, and the Times sold that story for a long time, to the point that, the, the U.S. government started to become alarmed by it. They started to recognize wow. that this was becoming a problem. Yeah, you see that um, in some of the Cuba documents that were released a few years ago. Yeah, the declassifications from the yeah. Kennedy era. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that that is definitely a case. And I do think that part of that is kind of a natural temptation because a journalist is a person. Yep. They have ideas about the world. They have assumptions. It's completely normal. Yep. Or humans. It, when it becomes extreme, yeah, you're human beings. I mean, this is just, you're, you're not a machine. You're not a robot. You're always going to bring your experience to the reporting. That's just how it is. When it becomes really extreme, it's a problem, as in the case of Matthews or Matthews, or when you're crossing ethical boundaries, like with William Lawrence in, in Japan. Sure. Um, or, or Guido and Darius in, in Germany. Mm -hmm. that, those are clear violations of ethical norms. But I think to answer the second part of the question, I think it's just got to be more of a collective process, meaning when you've got one person making 
all the decisions about the reporting, or in the case of um, the Times is reporting on the Palestinian Intifada in 2000, the, the team was a husband and wife team. Mm. So, you know, you're in lockstep because you're married. That's right. So those kinds of situations are, I think, very dangerous. And I think in general, when journalism is seen as something that the power belongs to us, meaning us as the New York Times or us as any other outlet, then you're starting to see the, the vulnerability to these kinds of things happen. Um, whereas when you start to say, I'm, I'm part of a broader enterprise of journalism as an individual journalist, I'm trying to do my best to approximate the truth, but we have to do it all in a sort of combined and collective way, each of us bringing a little piece of the story to present a mosaic. And I think that kind of attitude is where things generally go much better. I mean, when, when it's much more collegial and much more of a, a collaborative enterprise than one reporter saying, no, this is the story. You know, Ashley Rinsberg, you may not have worked in a newsroom, but you have a lot of wisdom about newsrooms. This book, folks, is a must read. It is my favorite book of the year. I seldom say that, but this book has had a profound effect on me uh, because I struggle with this issue. I'm so concerned about the state of journalism, including the big boys on on campus who, you know, own the narrative when they when they want to. And they're not owning it in a factually honest way. And nobody's done a better job than Ashley in this book. You haven't, write it down. Here you go. The Gray Lady Winked. That's a great line to remember. The Gray Lady Winked. The New York Times misreporting fabrications and distortions radically alter history, how they did that. So get that book. It's available everywhere. I'm reading it a second time this weekend because it's one of my favorite reads. Ashley, thank you so much for your contribution to journalism, to this dialogue. It's a great piece of literature. I also think it's a great piece of uh, conscience for my industry to make sure that we do a better job going forward. Great job. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's really an honor. Uh, very good. We'll have to have you back on the show soon. We'd love, love to do this. So good stuff. I love that. Thank you. All right, folks. We're going to have a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up on a very busy breaking news day. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Oh my gosh, what a, what a show. What a show. I'm, I'm exhausted already and I still got to do a TV show tonight. I don't know how I'm going to get the energy for it. So exciting. Big thanks to Garrett Best for queuing up what we're going to be doing tonight on Real America's Voice. And uh, a special thanks for the thoughtful, deep uh, investigation that Ashley Rinsberg brought to this show through his book, The Gray Lady Winked. Some really provocative things about what's right and wrong at the New York Times. Listen, we should have a good newspaper like the New York Times. I still read it, but it isn't the same quality newspaper it was a, a five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I know a lot of people... Uh, on the right, don't like it because it's got a liberal-voiced uh, pages, but at least it's news used to be something you could rely on. Today, you have to wonder often when you read a story whether it's just being juiced for opinion, whether it's opinion masquerading as fact, and as we know, egregious mistakes on the Russia collusion story. And I think uh, Ashley really got us thinking today about the bigger concerns about what ails this big, influential news organization midway or quarterway into the 21st century. Important stuff, important journalism, important investigative work. So grateful he brought that to us. All right, tonight, if you want to watch the Securing Our Election special, I think that's a good idea. I, I hope you do. I'll be working here at 8 o'clock tonight. We'll get that show out. You're going to love it. Here are our guests. We've got Governor Brian Kemp, Senator Rick Scott, State Representative Hoffman, Congressman Jim Banks, and the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, and so many more guests. Uh, uh, Jessica Anderson, our good friend, all joining us. You're going to learn a lot about what's true about the Georgia law, what's been false about the Georgia law, what's happened in places like Arizona, what are the Zuck bucks. We'll bring in our good friend Phil Klein, who is an expert on Zuckerberg money and has led the charge against uh, highlighting the corrupting influence of this money. Uh, all that's happening tonight. 
secure our securing our elections a primetime special on Real America's Voice on just the news on Rumble. Here are all the ways you can watch it. Channel 229 on the Dish Network. That's the Real America's Voice channel there. The Real America's Voice app. The Just the News website. If you use Pluto, that great new streaming service is Channel 240, also Real America's Voice. Or you can go to the front page of the brand new live streaming service at Rumble, the new YouTube, Rumble, the conservative-friendly YouTube alternative. Uh, we're going to have the show live on the front page of Rumble. So many ways to watch this. We're going to put it up as a permanent archive on the Just the News site. Big special. I'm so excited. I'm not used to being in the anchor's chair. I kind of feel like a fish out of the water on, when I'm on the, uh, the anchor side of the desk, but uh, I really felt like we could do some fun here and, and give people real facts with real frontline players who are doing what it takes to make our elections not only safer, but easier. It should be easier to vote. I agree with the Democrats. It should be easier to vote, but it shouldn't be easier to cheat. It should be harder to cheat, easier to vote. There are some real things going on in this world. You can watch that special 8 p.m. East Coast, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific time. You can do the math if you live in the center of the country. It'll be uh, 7 o'clock uh, in the Midwest, 6 o'clock in the mountain time. Important special, Real America's Voice, Just the News, Heritage, Action for America, all partnering together to give you a quality fact-filled show. No opinions, facts. I know you appreciate that because we trust you to make up your mind after you have the facts. All right, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. God bless you. Tune in tonight if you get the chance. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports here at justthenews.com.